Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. Uh, I'm also honored to serve as the moderator for today's discussion. Uh, with the unusual nature of the U.S. presidential election, it's probably understandable uh, that we that many of us might miss something going on in another interesting country with another interesting election, uh, and that's Iceland, uh, which also has important ramifications for financial markets, I guess, like you could say our own. Uh, for those of you who haven't been following it, just over a week ago, on October 29th, Iceland held its parliamentary elections. One of the most interesting aspects, of course, of this was the rise of the so-called Pirate Party, uh, also worth noting is that of the 63 elected members of parliament, 30 were female, giving Iceland the highest proportion of female MPs in Europe. So that's an accomplishment. Despite these milestones, no party held an outright majority. The largest party, the Independence Party, garnered only 29% of the vote. Accordingly, here we are over a week later, and Iceland still lacks a new coalition government. I'll say as an aside, I want to commend my friends uh, in Iceland for having some of the best names for their political parties. Uh, in addition to the Pirate Party, if you haven't heard of it, there's the Bright Future Party. Who could be against Bright Future, right? There's the People Party, uh, the Dawn Party, which kind of sounds like a Bright Future to me, the Humanist Party, and of course, the People's Front of Iceland, not to be confused with the Icelandic National Front. Splitters. <laughs> thought that was going to come somewhere. Uh, many of these parties have risen due to a populist backlash against both finance and capitalism in general, in addition to corruption believed linked to the 2008 banking crisis. While the Panama Papers made a short splash here in the United States, they featured predominantly in Iceland as several members of Iceland's government were revealed to hold offshore accounts. Of course, I will emphasize uh, so far, to the best of my knowledge, nothing has been legal, has been found with these offshore accounts. Um, I will also note that for at least the Pirate Party, the broader use of things like Bitcoin featured uh, prominently as well as offering citizenship to Edward Snowden. So to some extent, giving those of us in the Cato Institute a little bit of interest in this party. Uh, and they've also offered market solutions to fixes and cronyism, such as having more market uh, allocation of fishery rights and such. So I think it's an interesting time there with that. Uh, needless to say, the political financial environment in Iceland remains one of the most interesting in the world to help educate us on the economic environment surrounding Iceland's backlash against both its political and banking system. We are fortunate to have two distinguished speakers with us. Uh, to my right, Arturo Porkansky. Uh, he currently serves as the Distinguished Economist at Residence at the School of International Service at American University here in Washington. He previously taught at Columbia, New York University, and Williams College. Uh, he's also held a number of private sector positions, including Chief Economist for Emerging Markets at ABM AMRO, Chief Economist for the Americas at ING Bank, Chief Emerging Market Economist at Kidder Peabody, and Chief Economist uh, at the Republic National Bank of New York. He holds a doctorate in economics from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, to my left, which is usually the case, uh, <laughs> our second speaker will be Ike Brannon. Ike is currently a visiting fellow here at the Cato Institute, and he's the president of the Capital Policy Analytics, a consulting firm here in Washington as well. So if you need some consulting services, Ike's the man to talk to. Uh, he's previously held uh, positions as senior economist at the United States Department of the Treasury. He's worked on the Senate Finance Committee. He's worked on the Joint Economic Committee in Congress. Uh, he holds a doctorate in economics from Indiana. So um, Ike is going to give us a little bit of overview, and then Arturo is going to tell us a little bit about the effect of capital calls in the financial markets. Podium, where you can sit. Um, you know, I think I'll stand. Um, th thanks, Mark. Thanks for the uh, nice introduction. Um, there was a movie in uh, 1983 um, that maybe no one but 
but Mark, who's almost my vintage, will remember, called War Games. Um, and uh, War Games was a very exciting movie because it was the first movie that had anything to do with computers and the internet. And in it, Matthew Broderick, it was his first movie, um, has a modem and is able to tap into several different computer systems. And at the end, he taps into the Pentagon and he inadvertently uh, launches a, uh, a sequence where the Pentagon supercomputer uh, decides that it would be best if it launched a preemptive nuclear war. And this way, it would settle this thing once and forever. And so it became up to Matthew Broderick to figure out how to stop <clears throat> the supercomputer from preemptively launching a nuclear war. And so at one point, he asked the question, how do you win a war? And so once he directs the computer to contemplate such a thing, it starts flashing up all these names of possible scenarios that would trigger a nuclear war. And at the very end, it gets a scenario that's called the Iceland Conflagration. And upon the Iceland Conflagration flashing up, that's what finally forces the computer to realize that, no, there's, it's gone through every single possible scenario, and, and nuclear war can't be won. And then everyone's supposed to do a long, slow clap. And that's the 1980s movie that teaches you something as well as uh, uh, makes you entertained. So, um, but the Iceland conflagration, this phrase, always always stuck with me as, as a slightly bizarre yet interesting uh, aside in, uh, in an otherwise preachy movie. And then 25 years later, we had something that you kind of call the Iceland conflagration, where something that happened in a very small, out-of-the-way uh, country really exacerbated a, uh, a terrible situation we were in. And that was, of course, um, the financial crisis. Um, so I started to pay close attention to Iceland, uh, aside from the movie, in 2001. Um, at that time, I moved to um, uh, Washington, DC. I took a job with OMB. And one of my uh, classmates at uh, Indiana, and also a classmate at uh, my undergraduate school, Augustana College, uh, also happened to move there at the same time. And he took a job uh, a few blocks away from me at the IMF. And being the low man on the totem pole, and being from uh, the second-rate school that is uh, Indiana University to some people on the East Coast, um, he had the, the last pick in all the jobs at the IMF. And so his job was to um, uh, follow Iceland. And so we would meet for lunch every two or three weeks, and he would talk about what was going on in Iceland. And it was, of course, quite amusing for me to, to, to think about this guy, the, the IMF, watching a country that was the size of our hometown, Peoria, Illinois. Um, and I would bring that up more than once. And it, I was not the only person who brought that up, and his answer was always the same. It might be a small country, but it's got really big banks. And to have an idea how big the banks for Iceland were at the time, we can compare it to the Peoria, the situation of Peoria, Illinois. So Peoria's um, GDP today is about $20 billion. Um, Iceland's <clears throat> is about $15 billion. Um, those are up just a little bit from where they were uh, pre-recession, but not uh, pre-2008, you know, 2009, but, but not too much. The, the biggest bank in uh, the Peoria area um, has $3 billion in assets. I know this for a fact because I, uh, it's, it's the bank that originated in my hometown, and I'm one of the shareholders. And I uh, have literally the only uh, financial asset that, that it owns outside of the uh, central Illinois, and that's, that's my mortgage. Um, so $3 billion for the biggest bank in, in central Illinois, and the three biggest banks in um, in Iceland in, the, uh, in 2008 
added up to somewhere between, depending on exchange rates, 150 to um, uh, $175 billion. That's an order of magnitude more than the gross domestic product of um, Iceland. And the way they expanded so fast is they offered higher interest rates in Europe to depositors and other places, and then they tried to make that up by being very aggressive in their investments. Um, when financial markets collapsed and the stock market collapsed, uh, those banks found themselves uh, capital constrained. They were uh, holding assets that were relatively illiquid and worth a lot less than when they bought them, and uh, the banks collapsed. Um, Ireland, of course, bailed out their banks. Um, Iceland simply didn't have enough money to do that, and so um, uh, this precipitated a tremendous uh, financial and economic crisis in um, in Iceland. And so, what did they do? Um, well, to some degree, they um, they listened to uh, places like the Cato Institute. They did not do um, so. so I, I, I've this. I've been a, a visiting fellow with Cato for a year, but uh, in early 2009 with Chris Edwards. Um, I, uh, I had a month off between jobs, and Chris Edwards and I did a study uh, trying to tell people that the answer to some kind of economic crisis is not what we were contemplating doing at the time, which is a uh, rapid uh, increase in spending, but rather uh, they should focus on the supply side of the economy and try to make an economy more productive. And Iceland actually did that. Uh, I think they did that in part because they had little uh, they had little other choice. They just simply didn't have the assets to do any kind of uh, rapid reflation of the economy. Um, and their, their situation was, was kind of dire. Their unemployment rate was in uh, double digits. Their stock market uh, lost something like 80% of its value. Um, GDP fell by um, 10%. Uh, it, was, it was a dire situation. Uh, so what did they do? They, they dramatically cut spending. They um, uh, as Arturo is going to talk about, they imposed uh, very strong capital controls to uh, to keep capital from uh, fleeing the uh, the country, and uh, they pursue. And of course, uh, the the currency of the krona uh, devalued by I think 30 to 35 percent. And what the devaluation did is it it made uh, the country a lot more competitive. Of course, um, one of the problems that that, that Greece has is that. Uh, if wages are relatively rigid, right, something that, that's been written about since uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote the general theory, if wages can't fall, then it can be very difficult if demand goes down for wages to equilibrate to, to clear supply and demand. If you have your own currency, like uh, Iceland does, you're effectively able to uh, cut everybody's wages. So wages are below, still below where they were uh, pre-2007, 2008, but they were probably an, at an unsupportably high rate level at that time, given the relative productivity of, of the firms and, uh, and people in Iceland. And so after hitting this very uh, deep uh, trough, um, what you're seeing today in the last few years is, is that um, Iceland has, has bounced back quite nicely. Uh, it's bounced back faster than uh, Ireland, uh, I think, the, the two countries are often compared to in the, in the post-crisis world uh, because their names are almost the same in, in part, uh, and also, of course, because they're relatively uh, small countries. But um, Ireland pursued a different route, and uh, at least so far, it looks like Iceland has chosen uh, a, a better path. Um, so anyway, today, Iceland's economy has fully recovered in the sense that its GDP today is higher than it was uh, in, in 2008. Its unemployment rate is relatively low. 
Um, its interest rates are not so, uh, aren't terribly high. And uh, by most measures, you would say that its economy is, is going quite well, uh, despite the fact that wages haven't um, fully recovered. And so uh, that sets the table for uh, the current situation. So um, we still have cap currency controls on. I'm, I'm going to leave Arturo to, uh, to talk a little bit more about it. But that what to do about this and how to deal with uh, currency controls that have been on since 2008 is one of the main things that, that they're having to think about. As Mark said, the election recently happened uh, a week ago on uh, Saturday. Um, and in a nutshell, um, what it's done is it's, it's, led, it's left Iceland with a slightly more polarized uh, parliament. The, uh, the, the party on the right picked up a few seats. Uh, its, its normal coalition partner lost a lot of seats, and right now it's currently uh, the leading vote-getter and is trying to figure out how exactly to put together a coalition. Um, it looks like, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on Icelandic politics, but it looks like it will be able to put together some kind of coalition. Um, but I think uh, what's interesting, I think, for those of us who watch the global economy is, is how this gets resolved in terms of not just the parliamentary outcome, but how they deal with, with, with currency controls and, and capital controls, I think, is important for everywhere else as well. So, um, normally, so I'm married to a, a former Cato staffer who happens to be from Turkey. Um, and at first blush, you might think that, that Turkey and Iceland have very little in common. But uh, the reality is that, that uh, Turkey, for the last uh, couple of years, has been dealing with um, uh, external investment that it's not quite sure uh, what to do with. Um, as you probably know, Turkey's political situation has become more and more chaotic by the day. Um, people are still investing in Turkey, and no one's quite sure how long that's going to happen. Um, if there's all kinds of political instability and people start to get worried about investing in Turkey, how, how is that going to affect the economy? How is that going to affect the political situation? I think what people are worried about in Turkey is that um, if there is some kind of massive capital outflow, you could see Prime Minister Erdogan looking uh, to a place like Iceland, which at kind of surface value, you might say, has pulled off this currency uh, control, uh, capital control situation for a number of years without any outward uh, pain, and say maybe that's something that, that Turkey can do. And I don't want to steal Arturo's thunder, but um, you know, once you make something more difficult to get out, it's much more difficult to get things in. And that is a reputation that can uh, bind a country for years and years and years. So, so that's the, the table that um, we're looking at right now. And I, I think Arturo's going to talk a little bit about um, what might be the outcome of this and what we should be looking at in terms of um, how its uh, economic uh, reforms go from here. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you so much to Cato for uh, hosting this uh, conversation on Iceland. And uh, uh, my field of expertise uh, uh, found an interest in the case of Iceland because I've done quite a bit of work, uh, academic work, on capital controls in various countries around the world, and also <clears throat> various issues related to creditor rights uh, around the world. And as was mentioned, uh, while I've uh, been an academic the past 11 years, I, I worked on Wall Street for 30 years. So I, I have a mix of very practical uh, approaches uh, 
to uh, as well as uh, as well as a um, a view from above uh, from from these this second act of mine in academia. So hopefully it's a good combination. It's not just the theory; it's also the practice, and it's not just the practice; it's also some of the theoretical aspects. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to uh, read my remarks because I have quite a bit of detail, and I want to get that detail uh, correct. And uh, uh, and so that's why um, I will mention. So I, as was mentioned, <clears throat> the Icelandic economy has more than fully recovered from the financial crisis of 08, uh, but the normalization uh, of its international financial relations has been needlessly delayed. And recent policy decisions, in my view, are taking the country down a path of counterproductive confrontation with foreign investors in particular. As stringent capital controls were imposed in Iceland, as mentioned, in late 2008 in order to prevent large-scale capital flight and a complete collapse of the exchange rate. They were intended as a short-term measure to be removed as soon as possible. And as part of Iceland's first program with the IMF, the authorities committed to abolish them before the two-year program would be over in November 2010. The IMF approved of the capital controls and the EFTA institutions did not object because although the European Economic Area Agreement uh, guarantees the free movement of capital, it envisages that protective measures may be taken during major economic or financial disturbances. But here we are, eight years later, it's November 2016, and while partially liberalized this year, capital controls are still in place in Iceland, despite the fact that the banking crisis has been resolved to the government's satisfaction and that Iceland has exhibited a more vigorous economic recovery than most Nordic countries. Indeed, virtually all of Iceland's vital statistics are looking healthier today than they did before the crisis of 08. Real GDP stands higher, inflation is running lower, exports have boomed and diversified, such that uh, a string of current account deficits have turned into an equally long string of current account surpluses. The post-crisis fiscal deficit has been eliminated. Official external assets are higher than ever, and official external liabilities are lower than ever. The currency has been appreciating in both nominal and inflation-adjusted terms, and this despite the fact that the Central Bank of Iceland, the CBI, has been intervening to buy foreign exchange to pay off the IMF, which it has done, and then to bolster its own hard currency cash position significantly. In fact, the level of international reserves has more than tripled in both krona and euro terms since 2007, and it has never been stronger. The government had been unwilling to dismantle the capital controls until the banking system was recapitalized, their assets and liabilities were dealt with, and enormous losses were imposed on non-priority creditors. 
By now, that mission has been accomplished. Direct state support to the financial sector during the crisis had amounted to some 34 percentage points of GDP. But after asset recoveries and transfers and debt forgiveness, the government is estimated by the IMF to have made, made a net gain in excess of nine percentage points of GDP out of the banking crisis, a radically different outcome from the experience of all other European countries, which came out substantially more indebted in the wake of the 2008 crisis. Of relevance to the balance of payments, and as a product of the banking system's harsh resolution, Iceland's gross external debt has been cut from the equivalent of two and a half times GDP to about one and a quarter times GDP this year. Iceland's net international investment position has swung from a negative 200% of GDP in 2008 to just about zero at present. Having more than met their own preconditions for liberalization, the authorities have begun to ease the capital control regime. This year, Icelandic pension funds are being allowed to invest abroad the equivalent of 570 million euros, up from less than 100 million euros last year. And in recent days, individuals and companies in Iceland have been authorized to invest abroad up to the equivalent of a quarter million euros through year end, increasing to the equivalent of 810,000 euros next year, 2017. Furthermore, at the turn of the year, uh, they will also be authorized for the first time to transfer deposits and securities to and from Iceland to trade in securities abroad, and to purchase or withdraw foreign currency in cash within the aforementioned ceiling, of course. It's a modest start, but a very welcome one for an island whose residents historically were very much connected to the international financial system. In sharp contrast, the authorities came up with a coercive and punishing scheme for the so-called offshore krona investments, which have been trapped inside Iceland since 2008 by the capital controls. As of the end of May, these foreign investments were officially estimated at 319 billion krona, which is equivalent to 2.3 billion euros as of that date. To put that figure in context, the 2.3 billion euros, this amount of trapped investments was equivalent to less than half of the central bank's net foreign assets of, uh, 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 of uh, uh, over 700 billion krona, or about 5 billion euros as of end May. So it's not like the authorities didn't have the spare euros and dollars to sell to these investors in return for their krona holdings at the market exchange rate if they had wanted to do so. Nevertheless, foreign investors were given a chance to exit their positions and to access foreign exchange only 
if they would agree to a stiff departure tax from Iceland, a tax on their holdings to be determined at an auction where the central bank would determine what that tax would be. To encourage foreign investors to swallow such a bitter pill after eight years of waiting, the authorities announced their intent to imprison any remaining funds and to bleed them slowly over time. As per legislation passed in late May, all residual offshore krona uh, funds are now segregated into accounts subject to a 100% compulsory requirement to purchase krona-denominated deposit certificates issued by the central bank, paying a miserly interest rate of half of 1% per annum, which, to give you an idea, is a fraction of the 5.25% interest rate that the CBI currently pays on seven-day bank deposits. Foreign investors spurning the auction were warned by the authorities again and again to expect to languish in these creditor prisons for, quote, many years, unquote. In the event, the auction, which took place in mid-June, was a disappointment to the government. Most holders of offshore krona refused to participate, preferring to stay invested in Iceland and preparing themselves for a battle in the courts of the island and in the relevant European courts. The accepted offers were one-fourth of total offshore krona outstanding, and they suffered an exit tax, a haircut, of 38%. Apparently, the owners of three-fourths of offshore krona funds, the equivalent of 1.9 billion euros, are digging in for a long fight. But such a fight is not in the long-term interests of Iceland, and specifically not for the pricing of krona assets going forward, because future foreign investors will want to include a risk premium for the potential return of capital controls and also for the potential imposition of similar expropriations. The irony is that the government has recently admitted that there are foreign investors wanting to come into Iceland. These potential investors could generate the very foreign exchange inflows to compensate for whatever outflows on account of liberated offshore krona balances. The authorities would countenance. And yet, rather than welcoming new investors to Iceland, in June the government requested, and the Icelandic parliament readily agreed, to pass a law authorizing the central bank to impose a reserve requirement of up to 75% for a period as long as five years on any such money coming into Iceland into domestic bonds and bank deposits. And sure enough, if you want to invest in Icelandic bonds or bank deposits right now, you must do so for a minimum of one year, and 40% of your investment will be frozen upon arrival in a blocked account paying zero interest. In other words, the authorities in Reykjavik are phasing in new controls on capital inflows while phasing out 
the capital controls on outflows. The mistreatment of offshore krona investors appears to violate several of Iceland's obligations under the European Economic Area Agreement. According to its Article 4, quote, any discrimination on grounds of nationality shall be prohibited. And yet the Icelandic legislation knowingly targets foreign investors only, who according to the government's own estimates, account for at least a verified 85% of the total funds in question. Further, as per the agreement's Article 43, protective measures in the field of capital movements may be taken, quote, if movements of capital lead to disturbances in the functioning of the capital market. But the punishment of offshore krona investors is being applied in the absence of any such market disturbance. The leading investors have expressed to the government their willingness to depart from Iceland in a gradual, orderly, and agreed manner over a period of several years. They have also reportedly offered to exchange their krona holdings for a new government bond denominated in dollars, rather than insisting on cash up front. In other words, while the offshore krona investors have offered to make concessions that have the potential to prevent market disturbances, the authorities have spurned them. Article 43 also contemplates the adoption of protective measures in the event a government faces or is seriously threatened with balance of payments difficulties. But Iceland is not at all in this situation nowadays. As mentioned previously, current account deficits have turned into surpluses, gross external indebtedness has greatly diminished, and the krona has been appreciating even while the central bank has been bidding up the foreign exchange to refill its coffers of international reserves. So why, you might ask, are the authorities in Reykjavik so hostile to foreign investors? The stated reason has been that the foreign exchange market and economy could not possibly cope with a liberalization of capital controls, which was not preceded by a reduction of the overhang of offshore krona trapped inside Iceland. That reason may have been valid years ago, but it is not valid now. So one must look to political or other explanations especially since the government is now taking litigation and reputational risks, which it avoided when dealing with the estates of the failed banks. The hypothesis I have heard, including in Reykjavik, is that the authorities, as part of a political shift to gra towards greater nationalism and populism, the left in recent years, want to punish these offshore creditors because they view them as having contributed to the country's banking disaster of 2008. Such an attitude would be based on prejudice or ideology rather than the facts, however. Before 2008, the offshore krona investors were courted by the government and the private sector. They were solicited to buy government and corporate bonds 
and to acquire other Icelandic financial assets, such as stocks and bank deposits. There is no evidence that they were directly or indirectly responsible for the banking crisis. In the exhaustive 2010 report of the Icelandic, Icelandic Parliament's Special Investigation Commission, which analyzed in 23 chapters and 12 appendices all the factors and individuals who contributed to the bankruptcy of the country's three main banks, as previously mentioned by Ike, plenty of failings were identified, but the offshore Krona investors were not among them. Indeed, these investors became, and ought to be regarded as, victims of the negligence of the Icelandic private banks, the regulatory institutions, the technocrats, the policymakers, and the elected officials who were responsible for the crisis. They should not be held for ransom. I sure hope that in the wake of the recent parliamentary elections in Iceland, which were mentioned, the new government, once it's constituted, will reconsider and embrace a more reasonable solution that will signal the country's reintegration rather than, as we have in the title of today's event, the retreat of Iceland from financial markets. Thank you. Well, before we open up to questions, I'm going to give the panelists each a minute or two to respond to the other panelists. So, Ike, if you have anything to add. I, or, <clears throat> so I, I don't have anything to add. I just have, um, I, th I think, one, one question for um, Arturo. Um, and uh, so I, I, you know, uh, at, at one point it looked like um, Iceland was going to, uh, after this uh, financial crisis, was going to join um, the EU, and then that, that that fell through, and then, I mean, I, I thought it had to do with um, uh, d disputes about uh, fishing issues. Um, but how much of it do you think did much of it have to do actually with with um, their desire to keep their own krona or or capital controls? Well, so so joining the EU or not um, uh, has been a an issue that comes and goes in Iceland, like in some of the other countries. Uh, but as you know, it's possible to join the EU and uh, and not adopt the euro, or at least that that was that was uh, the, the recent arrivals have 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 joined the euro. But I think to 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 put it better, I think with the whole Brexit thing that's going on, uh, all bets are off on EU. I think that uh, who would want to accede now? Uh, you know, during the next couple of years, I think it's kind of a moot point. Whether in Iceland there was a consensus to accede, uh, I think nothing's going to happen in the next couple of years. The whole British exit is going to be the top priority, and I think a lot of other countries will be watching to see what comes out of that. So I don't think it's it's a live issue uh, for ex reasons external to Iceland. Never mind. I don't think it's been a big issue during the elections either. Great. I don't know if you had any comments or questions on what on Ike's remarks. No, no. Okay. Um, let me follow up with that um, and ask you, Arturo. Um, what do we know about the 
the investors in question. I mean, we certainly remember the cases of like, you know, the UK freezing deposit ice save and such, but um, do we know, are these, you know, a bunch of hedge funds in New York or is this retail investors, institutional investors from the UK? I mean, do we have any background on who the investors are? Not that I guess I should, should certainly qualify that with, uh, all investors should certainly be treated equally. But I'm, I'm sort of curious if that's part of the conversation. So the, the amount of offshore corona investments have decreased over time. Uh, some people have left. There have been a series of auctions uh, during the past few years that had a big haircut. People have been able to exit. What the authorities did is offer one last auction, and after that, that's it. You're, you're staying. Um, and uh, so a number of investors have exited at a price. They've licked their wounds and, and said, <laughs> okay, I'll take my losses and leave. Uh, and so now you are reduced to, it is said, uh, I have not uh, spoken with them, it is said basically four uh, identified uh, money managers uh, who are uh, the ones that have initiated litigation and so on. And uh, they have invested the money of American investors and of European investors. Uh, these are international funds that have money every place, including they happen to be in 2008 in Iceland when the curtain fell. And um, so, uh, um, as I say, what, what is known, because uh, not because the government has talked much about it, but because these funds have talked about it in their filings, oh, gotcha. okay. they have been meeting with the Icelandic government and they have made a number of concessions and said, you know, don't worry, we're not going to run. Uh, let's agree on a schedule. We own bonds that haven't matured yet, so we're willing to wait until maturity. Uh, you know, let's come up on a reasonable schedule for the next several years, you know, or else you can uh, give us a bond and uh, and we hold that bond, and you know the bond can be traded offshore in the secondary market, but it's not like you have to dig into your pockets to pay us uh, from reserves. So I think it's striking that despite the fact that there was willingness to negotiate on the part of these funds, that the government has refused to negotiate and has insisted uh, on scalping them. And I think that in 2008, 2009, you know, all over the Europe and even in the U.S., all kinds of terrible things happened in the haste to, 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 to prevent a complete uh, meltdown. But we are in 2016. So now the standards, I think, have gone to more normal. And it is right to ask whether uh, these kind of slash and burn tactics uh, are fitting uh, to the crime if there was a crime. And as I say, as far as I know, there isn't a crime here to begin with. So you, you touched on this, but I'd, I'd like you to dig a little deeper. I mean, is the concern that the final removal of capital controls would cause the crown to fall further? I mean, what is, why are there continued capital controls, do you think? So the official explanation is if we let people get out, they would all get out in a hurry and the currency would crash. Uh, and Wouldn't that help the terms of trade? I guess... They don't want to live through that again. <laughs> okay, because I, I can understand them. that. But but honestly, I think that uh, if everybody, if the, first of all, if there were very good reasons to get out of Iceland, 
like Iceland was, you know, a basket case, and it was going nowhere, and there was a lot of economic risk and political risk, and, you know, the fish weren't coming anymore, and the aluminum had melted, and the energy had disappeared, and so on. There may be, right? But Iceland is regarded as an attractive place, so why start from the assumption that everybody is going to run, first of all? Secondly, uh, there are evidently investors wanting to come to Iceland, so much so that the government has now erected these defenses against them coming in. So to me, it's illogical to be worried about people leaving and at the same time to be worried about people coming in. There should be a policy that opens arms to both, those who want to exit and those who want to come in. So to me, in the classroom, for example, it's a beautiful example of when once you go down the road of controls, Sometimes it's controls on prices, sometimes it's controls on wages, sometimes it's control on public utilities, sometimes it's controls on the exchange rate. Once you go down the road of rent controls, don't we all know plenty of stories about rent controls? Once you go down the road of controls, it's very hard to take them off without various vested interests uh, saying, no, don't touch that because, you know, I'm here because of, of, of what you provided the incentives you provided, so you can't do that to me now. So some countries like uh, Cyprus, for instance, they put in controls, but they got out of them quickly. So I, I think with controls, as every uh, other mechanism that disrupts the markets or, or, or distorts the markets, first advice is don't use them. Uh, there are other ways. Secondly, if you do use them, use them very little just to stop the panic, if you will, and then uh, provide confidence-building measures so that you don't have to depend on these kinds of crutches. In the case of Iceland, I think they've depended on the crutches very much, and so here we are. So it's, it's, a, it's an object lesson of, you know, we're having elections in this country. Who knows right. what is going to happen, right? But it's an object lesson that if you go for some uh, artificial measures that that distort and disrupt the markets, there are going to be consequences. There's no free lunch. I think it's a great reminder of that. And many of these develop their own political economies, just like import tariffs or other measures. You put them on, very easy to put them on, and then to take them off, it can be decades, right? With like, with a lot of the um, countervailing uh, duties and stuff like that. So we, we know this lesson. Uh, Iceland provides a good example of that. Two, uh, two, and two of the most robust economies in the 1990s, of course, Singapore and Chile, uh, found it very difficult to get rid of their own capital controls. And I think that just goes to Arturo's point that uh, these things build up people whose, whose investments or uh, profits are, are, are based on this, and it becomes very politically difficult to uh, extricate yourself from this. Great. Well, I want to come back to this issue, but I also want to open up to some questions. Uh, and so, first of all, uh, raise your hand and the microphone will come to you. Uh, if you could make sure your question is in the form of a question, that would be greatly appreciated. If you could identify yourself, that'd be helpful. Right here on the end, we'll start. Uh, gentleman here. Well, thank you very much. <clears throat> I appreciate the fact that Cato is holding an event on Iceland. I happen to be the Icelandic ambassador in Washington, D.C. My name is Geir Harte, and I was also the prime minister during the financial crisis. And I was intrigued uh, when I saw the announcement for, uh, for this event 
called uh, Iceland's retreat from the financial markets because there is no such retreats. There is no retreat from the financial markets. Icelandic entities, government entities, banks and so on are active in the financial markets and getting good terms on uh, what they are after. I was also <coughs> surprised when I read the announcement that there are a number of Iranian statements in these four paragraphs to advertise this event. It says here, let me read to you, its unemployment rate rose above 25%. Now, Mr. Brannan said double digit digits in his remarks, neither of which is true. It was 9.3 at the height of the crisis early 2010. It also says, surprisingly, that the uh, last election on October 29 solidified the Pirate Party's presence in government. Pirate Party has never been in government. If you maintain that being in parliament is the same as being in government, then you don't understand the parliamentary system and the way coalitions are made. Maybe that plays in Peoria, I don't know. But it <laughs> doesn't square with the facts. I remember the 70s when Mr. Nixon used to say that. <laughs> anyway, um, I think basically what Mr. Brannan said uh, in terms of the um, economic uh, picture is correct. Apart from the fact that purchasing power Household incomes are now, excuse me? I think your mic went out. Can you talk up just a little? Um, the economy has now completely recovered, including uh, household incomes, which are now higher than they were in 2007, 2008. You know, you may argue whether they were unsustainable at that time, but the, the figures show that they are now uh, higher than they were in those days. So I'm not going to, um, to, uh, to sp uh, spend time on the, on the uh, macroeconomic situation. Uh, you are both correct. It is very good right now. In terms of all the basic statistics and all the basic indicators, partly because at the beginning of this crisis, we were lucky enough to take the right decisions and not even try to, uh, to guarantee the external indebtedness of the banking system like our good friends in Ireland did. Now, uh, I guess the point of this meeting is what Mr. Porsikansky was talking about in terms of the elimination of the capital controls. It so happens that uh, the capital controls were imposed in November 2008 as part of an IMF program and at the insistence of the IMF. Now, we thought at the time that this was going to be a short, relatively short-term event, that's correct, maybe two years. But it turned out that after two years, uh, it was easier said than done. And so this year, finally, the government came up with a program in three stages, which is now being implemented. And the first state, stage just got the restructuring deal of the year award by the American Lawyer magazine. That was the deal uh, re uh, closing the estates of the old banks uh, in a negotiated settlement between the estates, between the creditors and the, and the estates. And uh, the second stage is the uh, relaxation of capital controls when it comes to the ISK offshore holders. And there's uh, the problem that Mr. Porstikansky has been describing. Uh, and the problem is that uh, 
only four, I think, four parties, four hedge funds probably, were not willing to uh, go along in the auction last uh, this summer. Uh, everybody else did. So these people are unhappy about their situation. I'm happy to hear that uh, they are willing to negotiate. I'm sure back in Reykjavik there are people who are interested in talking to them. That's not for me to say. But I'd like to add that the third part of the, of the sequencing of the relaxation of capital controls has to do with private individuals and, and businesses, and that is going forward uh, full steam. So we will be back to normal in this sense uh, before too long. Now, the problem that uh, was mentioned in terms of uh, importation of capital uh, is you know, once bitten, twice shy. One of the problems in before the crisis was that there was too much, there was so much carrier trade coming in to take advantage of high interest rates. People want to avoid that now and be, before uh, bad things happen. And uh, in terms of investors willing and wanting to come to Iceland, uh, there is no lack of, of, of uh, such uh, interest. There are a lot of companies interested in direct foreign investment in Iceland. The company, the, the government is welcoming them, and uh, and uh, I don't think there should be any any problem in terms of the capital controls. And I would just like to add that this the the program that uh, in three phases that I just mentioned that you alluded to, sir, are um, have been uh, you know gotten a lot of uh, good marks, have gotten very high mark from the IMF, and the test that you put them to in, in terms of the European uh, Economic Area Authority, the, the European Surveillance Authority, also at least in a preliminary way, has, it has been approved by this authority. So, um, I mean, the, the, uh, the legal problems here, uh, if, if, if people want to take this to court, that, that's fine. That's always an option for people who are not happy with, uh, with uh, their situation. But I believe that uh, that the uh, the government of Iceland has covered uh, all of the legal corners that uh, that uh, uh, belong to or are part of an equation like this. Otherwise, I, th I think the 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 comments and the remarks made here have been very interesting. I'd like to thank you, gentlemen. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for joining us today. <coughs> I much appreciate that. Um, the ambassador touched upon what I characterized sometimes as the, either called the carry trade, but also sometimes these hot money flows that can go back and forth. I think this is particularly appropriate question given if we start to see uh, tightening from the Federal Reserve over the next year, will that pull money out from the rest of the world? So is this, is the, this is a concern. Clearly, uh, carry trade was a driver of the crisis going in. What's the solution? If either one of my both my panelists would like to try to address that, uh, I can just say a few things. So, uh, as you know, since the 2008 crisis, all over the world, people have been scratching their heads and figuring, you know, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? And so, what has become very much in fashion is this whole macroprudential approach to financial systems, whereby you try to prevent the problems from. Uh, bringing down your banks. Uh, if it brings down a hedge fund, if it brings down a pension fund, if it brings down an individual investor, who cares? It doesn't have systemic implications. But the point is not to have any of the leading banks or even leading investment banks or anything like that uh, be brought down. And 
So the consensus has been, if you will, that instead of controlling the quote-unquote hot money at the border, making them go through customs and, and locking them up uh, in Calais or a place like that, you let the money come in, but you make sure that the financial institutions, the financial intermediaries that you care about, especially the ones that have insured deposits and any other ones that pose systemic risks, that those do not take the risky positions, uh, uh, do not take advantage of these uh, hot money to uh, you know, over leverage themselves and to um, have mismatches, currency mismatches or maturity mismatches that they cannot handle, et cetera, et cetera. So my answer is, I think there's a consensus that that's the right approach to do it. Maybe this consensus will be proven wrong after the next crisis and we'll go back to capital controls or some other way. But I think in general, the constructive consensus has been to stop uh, uh, to stop the, the trend towards capital controls and rather to reinforce the financial institutions through macroprudential, you know, better macroprudential standards of liquidity, solvency, and so on. I personally agree. That's where you should fight the fight. Uh, you know, if Fidelity wants to bet the ranch on the Icelandic kroner, I don't care. I would care if, if, if J.P. Morgan Chase wants to, to bet the ranch on, on some such thing. So I think this, uh, uh, I think what I, what I see and why maybe the small print was not, which I didn't write, was not justified, but I think the issue of retreat from financial markets is, is, is warranted because, because evidently, you know, the controls were done in an emergency situation, all kinds of crazy things, as I say, were done in an emergency situation, including this one. Uh, it's, it's not at all obvious with, you can't do a counterfactual what would have happened without these capital controls or if they had been abolished after two years. But in any case, the problem is once you get into them, they stick. And now, as I say, uh, uh, having controls on inflows as well as controls on outflows, it makes you wonder really uh, what, what, what is, where is the, the compass here? And so... In some, I think it's okay to, for a small open economy to concern itself with hot money and, and things like that, but I think the fight needs to be fought where all the other regulatory institutions are doing it, which is at the level of the banks. And in this case, the Icelandic banks either belong to the state or are very heavily influenced by the state. So I think that the chances, one would think, would be minimal that the top banks would get themselves into trouble again. Otherwise, the state would have to be in it with eyes open. So I think uh, I would recommend more uh, on the macroprudential front for Iceland and less on the capital control front. So the, the way to address the carry trade is through, is through the financial regulatory structure? Yes. I don't know if you have anything to add. Um, I, would, I would just say like getting macroprudential uh, stuff right can be, can be very, very difficult. And I just think about it in terms of the United States, what we're doing with uh, in trying to define what banks and insurance companies are uh, systematically uh, important, it's really uh, it's really tricky, and uh, just the notion of declaring a SIFI uh, really changes things. And so, it's made a lot of people think that if we're going to confer uh, uh, special regulatory constraints on these things, and also some of those have come with certain advantages, maybe we should think <coughs> about making sure that we never have anything uh, that size. Um, I, 
so I'm not sure. It's it's a it's a tricky thing. Yeah, no, certainly uh, we had our own uh, carry trade, if you will, that drove our housing bubble in the mid 2000s. Sure. And as I often say, it's not uh, a problem that the U.S. borrowed trillions of dollars from the rest of the world. The problem is we used it to bid up house prices. <laughs> we could have done something smart with it instead. Uh, maybe next time. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, gentleman here in the front in the saddle. Thank you. Uh, is it on? Hi, Hi Carl Golovin. A uh, question trying to relate actually these circumstances with even our nation's founding where each colony had its own system of credit or paper money. Rhode Island inflated theirs more than the other colonies. So if anyone was found that, yeah, that the people from Rhode Island invested in your economy, you might find out your wealth had been stolen through the differential inflation of currencies. So it seems like Iceland is really sought to protect its sovereignty and to keep its people from becoming debt slaves to investors from Britain and the Netherlands, perhaps especially, which wanted the people of Iceland to be obligated for the losses of their private banks. And this brings me back to the notion of the Bretton Woods Agreement that we, of course, yeah, the U.S. abdicated its responsibility. And I've, I've caught myself pondering at times whether if a Bretton Woods Agreement we're based in some place like Iceland, which is geopolitically neutral, not under control of the Icelandic government, but just like a place where each nation could come and hold one another accountable to not dumping credit or currency into each other's economies and even establish a redeemability back into gold, whether it might bring some uh, sa sanity to the international uh, monetary system. Uh, do you think a new Bretton Woods, geopolitically centered in a neutral place like Iceland, could? Uh, be a benefit to the world. I'm not sure that I think anywhere is neutral. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think it raises very in, in, important questions. We should certainly ask whether we're going down the path of the U.S. becoming debt slaves to China, if we're going to take that logic to its conclusion. Um, but I think it's important to ask, what is the next system going to look like? Is it just going to be a dollar system, or RMB system, a euro system? But, uh, you know, I believe uh, Archer spent a year or so at the IMF, so maybe he can shed some light on what the, what the next Bretton Woods will look like. Uh, I'm too practical a person to, to, to engage in this speculation. I think what we have is what we're going to have, warts and all. I think, I think Iceland's probably very uh, thankful that they never joined the EU or any other uh, currency regime, right? It was the, um, they, uh, their ability to devaluate was, I, I think, really what, what saved them. and, and um, as well as making some intelligent decisions uh, ex ante about about austerity that I think paid off in the long run. But had they been tied to the EU, I think they they would have been in, in a somewhat similar situation as Greece, where they're trying to figure out how to uh, cope with a situation that, that's beyond their control. Well, it, it's certainly worth observing. I think we've seen uh, more political courage in Iceland than we've seen in Greece, perhaps, to dealing with some of the structural issues that are there might be a fair comparison. So you can you might be able to say that uh, Greece playing uh, chicken with uh, oh, yeah. the EU is, uh, is is courageous, uh, fool foolhardy. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, so I don't know. I, you know, I, I if you, if you look at what happened to to Iceland and and, and the outcome, I think it, 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 I, I hope people. And I'll, I'm not sure this will ever happen, but I think people will say, well, this is obviously a much better path to go than than how how Greece has gone. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, all the way in the back, gentleman on the court on the end. I'm Jordan Sellers. I'm with um, FJS Helter Skelter Politics and Social Science. My question is about Iceland and its future. What are some of the new innovations coming through that country that kind of will bring some stability in their economy? So it's really about question of the future of the Iceland's economy. I don't know if you have 
either one of you want to reflect on that? Well, I think the ambassador can probably do the master master uh, sales job on Iceland. But as you know, it's become a very hot place for all the people who want to appreciate the environment and the clean environment and a very... Uh, very, uh, uh, you know, tourism has absolutely been booming. Uh, people who don't have, have never seen volcanoes or geysers or lava fields or, you know, all the beautiful natural raw things that Iceland offers have been going there. Um, if you're planning to go, I got to tell you, once you get there, you're going to have sticker shock. It's extremely expensive. Uh, to be a tourist in Iceland. So try to lock in as much as you can before you get there in case there's a free lunch to be had. But anyway, so uh, a power, they have an excess of power, so aluminum and, and, and other uh, power. And most of the power is, is, uh, 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 is, is certainly not uh, uh, fossil fuel. So, so it's, it's clean and, 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 uh, and natural and so on. And Fishing is still very important. Uh, so basically, fishing, aluminum, and uh, and tourism have been the big drivers uh, in recent years. Used to be just fishing, uh, then it was fishing and aluminum. Now it's fishing, aluminum, and and tourism. And uh, well, banking had a a brief uh, a brief uh, thing. So uh, it's uh, yeah, that's what I would say. But. It's not a very good sales job, excuse me. Well, let me but... follow up on the, on, the, on, the, on the banking point. Um, I mean, certainly a number of other countries, whether you think Switzerland, whether you think the, the Caymans, I mean, there are certainly a handful of countries that manage right. to have the, the thing, very large banking Everybody assets thinks with... they can do offshore banking well, but they can't. Okay. So there's a way and a way to, 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 well, to what have... The, what distinguishes right? doing because it well? if you do some of these statistics for some of these Caribbean islands, you'd also say, yeah. like, oh my God, what's going on here? So uh, there's a whole science to offshore banking that <laughs> obviously was not done well in Iceland, but that's... That's not a reason for condemning the industry. Uh, this gentleman here, uh, he's had his hand up for a while, been patient. My, my name is Ulrich Heva. I have uh, a little question to you. I'm a little bit surprised that you are surprised that the Iceland government has not made faster progress towards capital uh, liberalization uh, movements. The way you described it, and you also, Mr. Ambassador, it has been a great success story. The country is growing. The, the export on service and surplus. And one would wonder, what are the reasons, what are the factors that would convince the government to get rid of the capital criminals faster? Because if they had gotten rid of it already, would the average citizen be better off? I mean, that's what counts. So far, this has been a success story. And only if you could say, well, if we had free movement of capital, things would be even better. Then you would, could make an argument. Otherwise, I think the, the position of the government is understandable. I would like to make also a comment with when you compare Iceland and Greece. I don't think it's relevant. Greece has a long history <coughs> of competitive devaluations. The governments have competitive devaluations avoiding serious structural reforms, which is just not the case at all in Iceland, on the contrary. Yeah, I, I think where you're certainly on my part was intending to contrast the two, not compare them, but uh, that's, a, that's a good point. 
I just will address the first part. So again, in economics, it's very difficult to know the counterfactual, right? What would have happened? We don't do science. We do social science, which is not science at all. We cannot uh, rewind the tape and run Iceland with the capital controls being gotten rid of two years ago or four years ago and see what happens. We don't know. So we study similar situations and try to say, well, maybe, you know. Uh, but I would say as follows. Uh, maybe there was a case to delay their removal of the controls until the banking mess was cleaned up. Maybe. And the banking mess was only cleaned up recently, so uh, maybe, maybe that was a reason. I personally don't think so. I think the banking situation might still have not been completely uh, solved and still they could have eased up on the capital controls because so many other winds were blowing in their favor. And no matter how the banking situation really uh, came up, I don't think it would have uh, posed a destructive force on the economy. It's a judgment call. What is What I am pointing out is that it's not just that it's been eight years and we're not there yet. It's the a very discriminatory way through which now the controls are being removed. Uh, for the locals, welcome. You want to buy a property in Greece? You now can buy a property legally. Uh, but if you're a foreign investment, foreign investor uh, trapped in Iceland, uh, sorry, you cannot leave. Uh, so this is the thing. I think it's it's a um, it's an equity case. It's it's a I would say if you want a lack of elegance. Wh why if now you have arrived, you have settled. You are the only government that made money off of a banking crisis. You deserve a Nobel Prize in this, right? The only government that has made money off of a banking crisis is Iceland, which means tells you something, right? That they really uh, screwed the creditors way overboard. Uh, but anyway, so. But now that you've done that, you've achieved that, you've made money out of the banking crisis, and the economy has recovered every which way and then some, then noblesse oblige, right? Why don't you say like, okay, thank you for visiting Iceland. It's been eight years. I hope you had fun. But if you want to leave, leave. Or at least, you know, let's leave on the installment plan or something like that. What what strikes me as, as very strange and offensive is this... Uh, you can leave and it's okay. You cannot leave unless you pay a big tax. Or if you want to come in, you, you, you have to pay a big tax. But if you want to leave, you don't have to pay a big tax. So it's to me, it's, there's, it's very incoherent, uh, uh, very hard as an economist to add up uh, this thing. It's like you, know, you have a plant and you want it to grow. Uh, on the one hand, you deny it the sun. On the other hand, you give it water. I mean, what's the point? It needs both. So this is the inconsistency is what strikes me. But I also think that it's a reminder that the longer you keep controls of any kind, the more you're going to end up doing crazy things as you try to get rid of them. Because by then, you have a whole uh, vested interest in keeping certain things in place and, and, and in punishing. It becomes an income or wealth redistribution fight in the end. So it's a reminder that controls should be used only in very exigent circumstances and for a short time. There are better ways of, of doing this thing, certainly over the long run. And then uh, once you exit, 
try to exit as elegantly and cleanly as possible because what's the point of getting into fights with investors and you know it, it, it's 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 not an elegant solution it seems to me besides it's not an efficient solution. i mean i would i would also argue it has a long-term reputational effect if if investors three or four years down the road when presumably these capital controls are gone are starting to think that well, there's this precedent that that if Iceland gets into trouble again, they might impose something like this for an extended period of time. Uh, it'll make uh, investors think twice before coming into Iceland, and and it might drive rates higher. And it sh it will probably, as a result, bring bring slower future growth. So it's it's kind of a trade-off to some degree between um, what once you've solved the immediate problem between uh, growth now and, and growth in the future. Uh, I'll note in reference to Archer's answer that you will certainly occasionally hear people here in the U.S. say that we made money off the TARP, uh, whether we think that's true in an economic sense. Uh, yes, of course, we lost money on the auto bailouts in AIG, uh, so I guess we should say Iceland was smart not to have a failed in the auto industry. <laughs> that's where, where you went wrong. I think we've got time for one last question. We'll do this one here in the middle. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Kami, uh, but I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is about the knowledge uh, about ruling mafia uh, in advance about this casino economy. And it's about, you know, related question, you know, Panama League and resignation. And it's about in the context of Pakistani economy, where Imran Khan is giving the example of Iceland that Pakistani PM should resign as well because his name is in Panama <laughs> leak as well. So do these people, I mean ruling mafia knows in advance that somehow we are uh, kind of piling up uh, this system, their financial system that apparently look very strong, but it's all about getting loan from international market or stealing money and then transferring that money. I mean, Pakistan has been ruling since it's the formulation of that country by international thieves. And these people have no uh, inter in interest in their mind about the average person. They don't care about, they are just thieves and crook. So, but I'm surprised that Iceland was known as a little different country, you know. It's not in South Asia or Middle East where international thieves have the golden opportunity to steal other people's money and fill up their own, uh, fatten their own account in Switzerland. So again, my question is, do, do these international crook who rule these countries know in advance that these economies are just kind of very superficial, very paper economy, and uh, eventually they are going to go collapse, so we should make as much as we could and then transfer our wealth outside of the country. Thanks. So I, I, think, I guess I should um, preface, and certainly anybody can correct me wrong on the facts, but my understanding is uh, all of the Iceland officials who were mentioned in the Palomar Papers, none of them have yet been guilty, found guilty of any criminal activity. I, I, I think that's... Maybe, maybe I can please, please do. I, I don't... You're absolutely correct. Uh, there was one person in particular whose wife had her money in a Panama account. That was the prime minister who resigned as a result this spring. Not because it was illegal, but because it was not politically acceptable to the community. So he took the consequences of this arrangement, which had been recommended to them by, uh, uh, by their banks, I guess. But I would like to say this was not stolen money or illegal money in any way. 
this money originates from the Toyota dealership in Iceland, a completely reputable and respectable business, which uh, the wife inherited from her parents. So I just want to make that very clear. Thank but, you. And, and but I, the and political aspect was something else. Yeah, and, and I certainly uh, don't mean in any way to minimize the, the problems in Pakistan or, or as we see the problems in Brazil and lots of other places. Uh, certainly one of the downsides often of IMF and other assistance is it does get stolen. Uh, fortunately, it's not been stolen in this case. I don't know if far too much. Uh, what I would just say with regard to the banking crisis, and the ambassador can correct me if I'm wrong, but definitely those who played roulette uh, paid for it dearly. I mean, from everything from losing all their money to being in jail, etc. So I think that uh, by by not bailing out the banks and by insisting, as I mentioned, that people take losses, huge losses, uh, definitely, I don't think that, uh, I, I think the, there was an equity there that, that, uh, that uh, I don't think people are going to try it in Iceland again. In contrast to Ireland, right, which took the uh, exact opposite approach. Well, I, I want to thank our panelists. I want to thank you, the audience. Uh, we're going to be out here in the foyer for some uh, beer, wine, and cheese and crackers. So I hope you join us a little bit. And I know our panelists will stay around a little bit. Thank you. Thank you.